Revelation chapter 19, we're going to talk about a passage of scripture that's going to be an uplifting thing, right? In the chapter that's talking about the tribulation and how judgments have come, we've been talking about that in weeks past. We're doing a series uh, this spring on prophetic events that are yet to occur in the future, and we've been on the tribulation. The great tribulation will happen, uh, a seven-year period that happens when uh, the church, all of those who are saved, are caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and those who are left behind, unbelievers, will be left to go through seven years of, of horrible tribulation time. And yet there's something encouraging that happens while all of this is going on on earth, and it's called the marriage of the Lamb. Now, in chapter 19... The beginning of this chapter is rather tragic, and it talks about, from verse 1 down through verse number 5, it talks about these things that have happened in the tribulation, and are happening in the tribulation. And then we start reading, after the judgment of the harlot, in the first part of this chapter in the previous chapter, 18, in chapter 19, verse number 7. Let's begin to read there, and we will find some encouraging words there. Do you like to be encouraged? I do. I, I don't like to have a heavy heart all the time. Sometimes things happen that give us a heavy heart, and sometimes we do have those burdens. But boy, I'm glad that God gives us some things in His Word that are exciting, encouraging, and uplifting. And in verse number 7 of chapter 19, it says this, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come. And his wife hath made herself ready, and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And he saith unto me, this is John, the Apostle John, speaking of these things that the Lord has allowed him to see in heaven. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. Let's pray and we'll talk about the marriage of the Lamb. Father, I pray that you'd bless us in this preaching hour. Lord, help us to put aside the things of life. Yes, Lord, we have burdens and we have an altar that we can bring them to. But in this next few minutes, Lord, I pray you'd help us to consider this passage of Scripture, the importance of it, and how it affects even our lives today, even though it hasn't happened yet. I pray that you'd bless us. May the Holy Spirit take these wonderful and precious truths deep into our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we love to talk about marriages. Well, everybody except fathers. They end up paying for them usually. And, but weddings are, are kind of fun events. And in ancient times, it was a big deal for the Jews. And even in modern times, it's still a pretty big Back in those days, they made a big celebration out of it. It's always been a big deal. But in modern times, I mean, if you think back to 2011, uh, when... Prince William and Kate Middleton got married. I was reading about the cost of their wedding. And it was estimated 
the wedding was estimated to be $34 million. Dads, thank God, you probably didn't pay for one that expensive yet. It included an $80,000 wedding cake. $80,000 for a cake. (laughs) And there was $800,000 worth of flowers. (laughs) And some of you guys bought your wife some roses. It cost $14.95 at Walmart a while back. And there was a wedding dress for the bride with a price tag of $434,000. That's, that's more money than I've made in the last few years. <laughs> oh my, that's a lot of money, you know. That's for a wedding. Well, we're going to talk about a wedding today. And we've been reading about and Speaking about, in weeks past, we've talked about the tribulation time. Kind of keep it in your mind, the chronological order of these events. The next thing that happens on God's calendar is what? He's coming back in the air, not coming all the way down to the earth, but he's coming back in the air, and a trumpet's going to sound, and he's going to catch up all of his saints, those who are saved right now. If you're saved this morning, you'll be in that group if he comes back before you die. And so he's catching up everybody who's saved. That's the next event. And then we talked about the fact that when we get up there with him, there's going to be the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, and that's designed just for believers. And that's not where you'll be judged for your sins, but you'll be judged according to your life as a Christian. In other words, it will be a time of rewards or loss of rewards. You'll be rewarded for that which you did from the day you got saved forward. And if you lived a life of service to the Lord, and you were more involved with the Lord than you was thinking about the things of the world, there's rewards waiting there for you. So that's a pretty joyous occasion for many who will be there having served the Lord. And so that's when God's going to clean us up. We're, we're the bride of Christ. Those who are alive and saved in this New Testament era, we are called the bride of Christ as Corporately, together. All of us are the bride of Christ. And so he's going to clean us up, smooth out the wrinkles, knock off the rough edges at the judgment seat of Christ. Now keep in mind that while this is going on up yonder, down on earth, those who got left behind because they were not saved, they'll be going through the tribulation time. And it gets very bad in the second half compared to the first half. The Antichrist will break his covenant with the Jews of Israel and he will begin to persecute Israel and basically everybody who has not taken the mark of the beast and not following him, they will be persecuted. Many will be martyred who do accept Christ during the tribulation time. They'll be martyred for their faith. And all of this is going on for seven years on earth. But while it's going on towards the end, and that's what we just read about, towards the end of that seven years, tribulation is still going on, but we're up yonder, and we've gone through the judgment seat of Christ, and now comes the marriage of the Lamb. The bride, those who are saved right now, they got caught up in the rapture, and all those who were saved and died prior to the rapture in the New Testament time, 
will be part of this marriage ceremony. And it will be one of the most magnificent events in all of human history. Nothing like it ever before. No matter what kind of wedding you have seen, you ain't seen nothing yet. (laughs) And we have here a bringing together of Christ and his church in an official wedding ceremony. Now, understanding this future event will serve a number of purposes for us. Uh, Number one, we'll know more about prophetic events. Everybody wants to know about prophecy. And everybody wants to know more about the Bible. And so this studying about the marriage ceremony, this marriage of the Lamb, will give us more knowledge, biblical knowledge, about what's going to happen. I think God wanted us to know or he wouldn't have written it about it in the scriptures. And anything that he writes about is worthy of our study and our attention. And secondly, we'll know more about the prophetical events yet to happen. I mean, everybody wonders what's going to happen next and what's going to happen after that. And so it'll help us to get it clearer in our mind about the chronology of all of this. And it'll do something else. It'll create in Christians, believers, a a sense of need to serve God. I mean, he didn't just serve us. He didn't save us so that we could just sit on our blessed assurance and do nothing, right? He saved us to do something for him after we get saved. And there's a number of things we can do do for him besides coming to church and besides singing and besides preaching and besides being involved in the services of the church. uh, We can witness and tell others how to be saved. And so all of these things uh, that we'll see in this marriage ceremony When we see it come to pass, and I'll say more about it a little bit later, how it will create more of a sense of, I need to be serving God. And boy, oh boy, we live in a time of of apathy where a lot of people get saved and think, well, it's all over now. I don't have to do anything else. I just coast into heaven. Well, he wants you to be in heaven all right, and nothing's going to steal your salvation, but he wants you to serve him with your life. And so that will create that sense of need in us. And one other thing that it'll do, well, several things, but one other important thing it'll do is understanding the marriage of the Lamb and how it excludes those who are not saved will create in the unbeliever an urgency to come to Christ and trust Him for salvation, to be born again so that they can enjoy the pleasures of heaven that will study about this morning. Let's begin by understanding the setting. I like to know when, where, and how all these things are taking place, who's involved and all of that. And so the marriage of the Lamb will be a magnificent, beautiful, interesting, encouraging, exciting event. It'll be one of the greatest that's ever happened. It'll be the consummation of all the hopes and desires that the Father had for the Son, Jesus. The bride is none other than the New Testament church and is to become become the Lamb's official wife in this ceremony. Oh, there's a number of scriptures we can go to and see those things. Uh, and, and a lot of people, there's, there's, I shouldn't say a lot, but there, at least there's some people who believe that the church is New Testament Israel. And they don't see a differentiation between the church and Israel. But I, I'm here to tell you, I believe the Bible is very plain that, that Israel is a separate entity from the church. 
and that you and I are not Israel. The church today is not Israel, and we don't inherit what exactly what was promised to Israel. Only Israel gets those promises, but we have precious promises made to us. Some of those promises overlap, but we're different. We're the church. We're not Israel. <clears throat> and some say, well, in the, in the Old Testament, the Bible says that, that Jehovah's wife, the father's wife, is Israel. And so this, would, this just simply means that, that Israel is the bride instead of the church. But we're not the same. It is true that Jehovah was married in the Old Testament to Israel, symbolically, but a divorce took place. And you can read about it in Jeremiah, and you can read about it in, uh, in some other passages of scriptures that's very plain that, that the Lord Jehovah put aside Israel. He said, I've given her a bill of divorcement. Now, in the future times, after this wedding ceremony and after the tribulation and, and during the millennium, he's going to take back to him. The father will take back Israel to be his wife. But the New Testament church is the bride of Christ. You see the differentiation? And so <clears throat> this is a <clears throat> this tribulation is going on, on the earth during this <clears throat> during this time. So the setting is tribulation on earth, but a ceremony in heaven. And you can save your dollars trying to have the most magnificent wedding of all time, but boy, you're going to see something as a Christian. You're going to see something magnificent for sure. And you just you can't top it. It's going to be totally different. It's going to be a, a spectacle. Everyone who has a wedding is looking forward to something that we often call a marriage made in heaven. Well, this wedding of the church to Jesus in heaven is truly going to be a marriage made in heaven. And it'll be different. When our oldest daughter got uh, married, she was a... She'd gone to Bible college in Powell, Tennessee, Knoxville, and she was uh, in the college and in the church uh, under Brother Clarence Sexton, where he still pastors and still has the college today, and it's grown a lot. But when they were in the old building, in the old church building, uh, we lived, my wife and I, and Aaron lived in Denver, uh, Colorado, and we found out she was going to get married. it all started out innocently, you know. She called me one day and she said, Dad, I, I've been invited out to lunch by a guy that uh, Brother Sexton has recommended, that my pastor recommended that I just go ahead and have lunch with him. She said, I'm scared to death. What do you think I ought to do? I said, well, you're just going to lunch with this guy. It's not like you're going to marry him. Well, she ended up marrying him. <laughs> Sometimes we have to get our foot out of our mouth, you know. And so... This le- one thing led to another, and after a few months, uh, they've determined they're going to get married, and they're going to have a big ceremony there at Temple Baptist Church in Knoxville, and, and, and dads, these things, I'd always encouraged the kids, have a church wedding, have a big wedding. My, my wife and I weren't even saved when we got married, so we missed out on a lot of those things, but I wanted the kids to have a church wedding, you know, and, and boy, did she ever have a church wedding. That was a big church out there. You know how much barbecue those people can eat at a supper? <laughs> Well, when I saw Angela, she wanted me to walk her down the aisle, you know, and so at the ceremony, I'm 
standing in the hall waiting. She's back there getting dressed and getting all prettied up. You know, they're doing her hair and her makeup and the wedding gown and all that. You know how it works, right? And so she's getting all prettied up, and I'm standing in the hall waiting. You know, I felt uh, nervous, probably as nervous as the groom. And so I'm standing there waiting to march her down the aisle in front of all those people, like probably two or 3,000 people. I don't know how many was there. But I just know they eat a lot. <coughs> and did I ever mention it costs a lot of money to get that kid married? <laughs> and so she comes out of this room. She's been getting all prettied up. And, and when she walks, I've been pretty, pretty calm about everything, the whole wedding ceremony. I've been pretty calm about all of that, except for having to pay for their eating bill. And so she comes out, and I've been just kind of being calm about it. And when I saw her in her beautiful gown... And she came out in the hallway, and she smiled at me and took my arm. Well, have you ever seen a grown man cry? <laughs> it's embarrassing as all get out. <laughs> she was so beautiful, bride coming down the hallway, and she and I were going to walk through that door together and march down through there in front of all those people who eat so much. <laughs> and <laughs> did I tell you there's a reception after the wedding also? <laughs> You know, I, that was magnificent to me. But you know, when we come to this wedding in heaven, the marriage of the Lamb, I suspect since heaven is on such a grand scale, I mean, they got golden streets and all, and the Father owns the cattle on a thousand hills, plus the hills underneath the cattle. I figure this wedding will be reflective of the richness, the wealth of the Father. And so, boy, have we got something to look forward to. Notice the second thing about the wedding, the time of it. When is this going to take place anyway? Well, it's going to take place between uh, the rapture and the second coming. The rapture is just before the tribulation starts, that seven years of horrible time on earth. When we get caught up, then there's seven years that elapse until the second coming, at least seven years. And so during that time, we have the judgment seat of Christ, and that's when we get cleaned up as the bride of Christ, and He rewards us for those things that we did in service to Him while we were alive here on earth. And so during that time, this judgment seat of Christ, he cleans us up by, by ironing out the rough places and deleting the things that we did with wrong motives, deleting the things that made no difference, deleting the things that we thought were important to us, but they weren't important to him. And so he cleans us up as the bride, and that's where our wedding garment comes in, but we'll come back to that. Uh, this is a time when... Everything's as bad on earth as it possibly could be. I mean, the devil incarnate is running rampant on the earth. I wouldn't want to be a lost person staying behind to go through all of that. I'm glad to be saved. I'd rather be involved in the marriage of the Lamb. And so towards, somewhere towards the end of the tribulation, and I don't think anybody can put a day and an hour on it, but somewhere, it has to be before the second coming, because the bride has to be readied and the ceremony has to happen before he comes back because we're coming back with him. And when I describe the Jewish wedding ceremony in a little bit, you'll understand a little more about that. But just take it that this timing happens just 
before the end of the tribulation sometime. Now let's talk about that pattern. The pattern of the wedding. The biblical pattern in the east. See, we live in the west and we do a lot of things differently here. I mean, here we normally have an engagement and some period of time passes between the engagement and the actual ceremony, uh, wedding ceremony. And and, uh, we have... Our brides and grooms fall in love, and they they court for a one for court with one another for a while, and then they determine they've fallen deeply in love, and they got to get married, and so then it finally happens. Well, that's not the way they did it in the Bible times. Uh, it's a little bit different in the Eastern culture. There was three stages that had to come to pass in a Jewish wedding, and first was the betrothal stage. And next was the presentation stage and finally the celebration stage. And so we had three stages to that Jewish wedding and this was drawn out, way drawn out, sometimes for years upon years. The betrothal stage was kind of like an engagement we understand here in the West, but it was, it was selected by the parents. <laughs> How many of you teenagers... <laughs> Young people, how many of you would like for your parents to pick your spouse for you? And you don't even know them yet. <laughs> That's the way they did it in Jewish culture. The mother and the father, they would go pick a bride for the son, and they'd make an agreement with those parents, and the, the parents would exchange a dowry for the bride. I mean, they had... Had to pay for that gal. Well, we're still doing that in modern culture. We're still paying for those gals. (laughs) But they would give a dowry. And so this was the betrothal stage. And it was an official, it was an official documentation of what's gonna happen in the future. I mean, they're married, they're considered married as soon as those two sets of parents agree upon the wedding between that boy and that girl. They may not be but five years old. Now, they're not consummating the marriage yet, but the, the agreement is being made in the betrothal time. And so during this stage, after they've exchanged the dowry and all of that, and they're both agreed upon it, both parents are agreed upon it, then the boy still lives in his home with his parents until he grows up, and the girl still lives in her home till she grows up. And this is, this is a marriage that is just, it's done, it's a done deal, but the ceremony hasn't happened yet. The consummation hasn't taken place yet. And so even though they're living in two different places, and think about this, we as the bride of Christ, we, we have a done deal. When we're saved, when you got saved, you became part of that bride of Christ. With me? You became part of the bride of Christ even though you're living in your place and the groom's living in his place. You're separated by space and time, but it's going to come to pass. And so that's the betrothal stage. And then there's a presentation uh, time, a presentation stage. And the father, this boy's living in his father's house. He grows up. The, the bride is still living in her parents' house. And so the time comes when the father says, okay, it's time for the wedding. And the father's in charge of all this. And so he says, okay, it's time to go get your bride. And so the father sends the son. He goes over to his bride's house and picks her up and takes her back to his father's house. And so 
things are going to begin to happen more rapidly now. This first part may have taken a long time. We don't know. And so when Jesus comes to get us in the rapture, the Father has sent him to the bride's home to bring her back to the Father's home to get ready for the ceremony. So when we go up, church, when we go up, saved people, when we go up, Christian, when we go up, the Son is taking us back to the Father's house to have this ceremony. And that's how it's pictured. And then the third stage is the festival stage. The, the ceremony and the celebration and all of that takes place following the wedding. And so at that wedding, the friends would all come in and, and they'd have a, they might even have a private ceremony first, just the bride and the groom and their families and such. But then uh, during some other stages, they have some guests and friends and a lot of other people join in. And it, it just kind of grows over a period of time. <laughs> and so this, is never, this has never been paralleled on, in earth's history. Nothing like this has ever happened. You talk about a big wedding. We're talking about millions of people. Millions upon millions of people being the bride of Christ and all together. And there's, there's friends and family and so forth there. None of, the, none of the lost people will be there. They're all saved people. But some of them who will be at this wedding as guests will be, they'll be Old Testament saints. They, they trusted the Lord in the Old Testament. And so they're going to be there. They won't be part of the bride of Christ because they're Old Testament just you and I saved in the New Testament time will be the bride of Christ. But the Old Testament saints, John the Baptist said he wasn't, that he wasn't the groom, and he, wasn't the, he wasn't the bridegroom, but he was a friend of the bridegroom. And so he's not part of the bride and he's not part of the bridegroom. John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets. And so he'll be there as a friend and so will all the other Old Testament prophets. There'll be some who got saved in the tribulation time. During that seven years of tribulation, some of them are going to get saved. Now, they won't be part of the church because they waited too long. But some of them will be saved during the tribulation. And the tribulation saints, they won't be in their resurrected body yet. But they'll be spiritually present in heaven. And so they'll be, they'll be part of the friends, guests at the wedding. But just you and I, who are saved in this New Testament church age, will be the bride of Christ. Now let's talk about something of utmost importance now. Let's talk about the wedding garment. I said I'd say a little more about that. Uh, I preached a number of sermons during my 40 years plus of ministry. Uh, even apart from the wedding ceremonies I've performed, I was a photographer, an amateur photographer, for a number of weddings uh, that I didn't even preach back in my early days. I won a, I won a 35 millimeter camera. You know, that was back before they had iPhones and, and, uh, and uh, the smartphones and all. And so nobody had a camera much except a little Kodak or a Brownie or something like that. You had to take a picture and get it developed, and a lot of them didn't turn out very good. Well, I won a 35 millimeter Chinon camera, and it took good pictures if you knew what you were doing. And so I'd take that little camera. I bought me a big long lens so I could zoom in real close and get people's face up real close and shoot some portraits and stuff and candids at the weddings. So I shot a lot of weddings. I saw a lot of brides. Been to a few weddings I didn't have anything to do with, just sitting there watching. But I've seen a lot of brides. And 
I guess when they marched down the aisle, every aisle, you know when the, you know, the piano's playing or the organ's playing and everything's just real calm and then suddenly the bride gets to the doors where she's going to enter and walk down the aisle and then they go, bum, bum, ba, bum, and they start the march and boy, everybody stands and looks back and who are they looking at? They ain't looking at the old bridegroom, they're looking at the bride in her beautiful gown. Now, I just want to say up front that at this marriage of the Lamb, that the attention will be on the Lamb, the attention will be on Jesus more than it will be the bride. But here in our Western culture in this day and time, we focus on that bride. And I think that's why the scriptures are pointing us to the importance of the bride right here as we speak about her beauty and her gown and her garment. Um, let me look back here and see. Um, yeah, it says in verse number 7, it says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the wife hath made herself ready. Anybody's waited on a bride before, you know how long it takes to get ready. It changes a little after you get married, but not a lot. <laughs> like one guy said, he said to his wife, he said, uh, don't we uh, change places this morning? Sunday morning, we're going to church. Why don't we just change places? And she said, uh, "Oh, that'll be good." She said, "I'll go." She said, "You you bathe the kids and dress the kids, and I'll go outside in the driveway and sit in the car and honk at you." <laughs> it takes a while for those brides just to get fixed just right, you know, and they like to look pretty, and so the. The bride at a wedding, she's made herself ready, according to verse 7. At the judgment seat of Christ, uh, he's judged those things that were spots and wrinkles and ironed those and cleansed those all away, and now she's made herself ready. And this gown, garment, will glimmer more brightly than any wedding garment you've ever seen. Beautiful, beautiful garment on the bride. I heard about the couple that went to town. I think it was an Amish couple. Went to town first time. They'd lived out in the country all their life, and they went to the big city. And they walk in this this big hotel. And so they're all standing around, and the wife wants to go off and look at something. So she's she's off to the side, and, and the dad and the kids are just standing there in the lobby just watching things happen, you know, and there's people coming and going. And the dad looks over at the elevator. He's never seen one of those contraptions before. And he looks at the elevator, and the elevator doors open. People get in, doors close, and a few minutes later, he sees the doors open again and people step out. Well, he's watching all that, and he sees this real old wrinkled up woman, boy, she's, she's, uh, she's overweight and she just looks awful, you know, and he's watching her and she steps in that elevator and the doors close. And a few minutes pass and he's standing there watching and finally the doors open again and this beautiful young blonde steps out, dressed nicely. And the father looks around at his kids and says, go get your mama, we got to get her on that thing. Well, I didn't think you'd think it was funny, but I did. (laughs) In Revelation 19.8, we find this bride has made herself ready. Now, look at verse number 8. Let's read it together. 
and to her, the bride, was granted that she should be arrayed, watch this, in fine linen, clean and white. Now this next phrase, I don't know if you've thought about it before, but think about it now. The next phrase, last phrase of verse 8. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Wait, we're the saints. You say, I thought we put off the old robe and put it on the new. And when we got saved, we were unrighteous and we don't have any righteousness of our own because we got saved by putting on the righteous robe of Christ. And that's true. But what does this mean? That she's arrayed in fine linen, which is the righteousness of the saints. That seems contradictory. But yet, in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 8 and 9, it says that we're saved by grace, not of ourselves, as a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But then in verse 10 it says, created unto, what? Good works. So when we get saved, we didn't get saved by our good works, but we're created to be in good works, performing good works, doing good deeds, after we get saved. And one of the, one of the commentators talks about how the Romans would dress in these days, and there was an inner garment and an outer garment. The inner garment was put on first, and then the outer garment, the in, inner one was called a tunic, and the outer one was called the toga. And so they put on the outer garment after the inner garment was on. And so when you're walking around with that garb on, then everybody that sees you sees what? They don't see your inner garment. They see your outer garment. And so here's the, here's the lesson in that. When you get saved, people don't, they can't see that inner tunic of the righteousness of Christ in you. They can't see whether you're saved or not. All they see is the outer garment that shows how you act and behave as a Christian. And so the good things you do as a Christian, the godly things you do, are seen as your outer garment. It does nothing to earn you salvation, but God is interested in your outer garment. And that inner tunic, that inner garment was the salvation, the robe pure and white that God gave you because of the blood of Christ. And nothing can take the place of that. But you do have your testimony, your outer robe. And that's why we went through that judgment seat of Christ in, this, in the past messages. That when he cleans up the bride in the judgment seat of Christ, all of those things that are undesirable are washed away, they're ironed out, the wrinkles are smoothed, and what people will see is the outer garment. And that's why he says here that the, the bride is arrayed in fine linen, which is the righteousness of the saints. So people can see a lot about you by the way you conduct yourself as a Christian. And they can make maybe a maybe they can make a supposition on whether you've got the inner garment on or not by the way your outer garment looks. You see what I'm saying? You see how important it is when you get saved to separate from the world, to separate from the sinfulness, to separate from the ungodliness, to separate from the things that make us have a bad testimony. And so that we put on the outer garment that people can see 
of good deeds, the acts of righteousness, the deeds of righteousness. I think some will shine more brightly than others. Because think of this, at the judgment seat of Christ, if most of what we've done, are you listening, Christian? If most of what we did after we got saved was for self-glorification instead of glorifying and serving Christ, then most of that's going to get placed to the side at the judgment seat of Christ. And so whatever's left, remember 1 Corinthians chapter number 3, wood, hay, and stubble will be burned up and only what was done rightly for the Lord will be left behind. Some people won't have as bright a garment after the judgment seat of Christ. Daniel 12, 1 and 3 gives in context of resurrection and tribulation this same truth. It says in verse number 1 of Daniel 12, And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, the Jews, and there shall be a time of, a time of trouble such as never was since, the, since there was a nation even to that same time. This is a tribulation he's talking of. And he says, And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. That's the resurrection. Some to everlasting life. That's the first resurrection. Now fast forward a few thousand years, or at least a thousand years. And then it says, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who didn't get saved will be in a resurrection as well. They won't be in the first resurrection though. They'll be in the resurrection that takes them before the white throne judgment when they're judged and cast into the lake of fire. And here's what I want you to see though in verse number three. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. In some sense, according to this passage of Scripture, in some sense, those who have believed on the Lord, in some sense, for eternity, they're going to shine more brightly than others. Just like you can look up in the sky at night. Has anybody noticed a full moon last week? Man, full moon, beautiful. When there's not a full moon, you can see more stars, and you can see some stars that are very bright, uh, they stand out, and there's other stars that just kind of are dim. You ever notice that? Well, it's going to be that way with the saints of God in heaven. Some are going to stand out, and they're going to be very bright for all of eternity. Others won't shine as brightly. And so that's why, Christian friend, it's so important that what we do as a Christian in this life will affect how we shine in eternity. Does that make some sense? Charles Ryrie in his commentary on Revelation has noted uh, a balance between God's sovereignty to her was granted and man's responsibility hath made herself ready. See, God, God does for us things by grace and we wouldn't be able to do anything without Him. That's God's sovereignty. Nothing will be done of any value apart from Christ. But we have a responsibility to allow Him to work through us. It's our responsibility to respond to Him. 
W.A. Criswell, in his expository sermons on Revelation, believes that the Christian will wear two robes, as I mentioned a little while ago, like the Roman tunic and the toga. And he references Ephesians 2.10 and Ephesians 5.26, where it says that Christ wants to present to... uh, to him, or Paul wants to present to Christ a glorious church having no spot or wrinkle. That's why it's important. Now notice the participants. I've already mentioned this in, in some detail, but the participants are going to be the Father, and the Son, who is the bridegroom, and the church, who is the bride, and then you're going to have guests like the Old Testament and Tribulation saints, and Lastly, let's talk about the supper. The supper. It says in verse number 9 in our text, it says, And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now that's a little different phrase than we read about just a couple of verses back where it says the marriage of the Lamb. And so some Some Bible students believe that these are one and the same, that they're both going to occur as part of the same occasion. There's going to be a marriage ceremony and then immediately the supper. And there's others who believe that it's not going to be the same event. I happen to belong to the last group. I believe there's two different events. The marriage is going to be us in heaven, the marriage ceremony, but then... When Jesus comes and brings us back with him to the earth, I think the supper is going to take place on the earth and the the beginning of the millennial reign of Christ, the thousand-year reign, is going to see a huge celebration for a thousand years. Some believe that that celebration will just last a day or two. Some believe it will last a, a week or two. I believe it's going to last for a thousand years. The millennial reign of Christ, boy, it's going to be stuff going on. There's going to be excitement. There's going to be, there's going to be a new earth. There's going to be a new Jerusalem extended just above the earth. And the earth is going to lose its curse. No more briars. No more thorns on the blackberry bushes. No more stickers. No more poisonous plants. Everything's going to be as it was in the Garden of Eden for a thousand years. The Bible says if a baby were to die during this thousand-year reign, a baby dies at 100 years old, it's going to be something unusual to die that young. The plants will be bearing fruits, cherries on the tree as big as basketballs. Well, that's my interpretation. <laughs> you just don't want to sit and eat the fruit under the tree. <laughs> this is going to be a big time of celebration. It's only going to be the church and Israel going into it at the beginning who are saved. Now, there will be babies born to those who came out of the tribulation. They got saved in the tribulation in their natural bodies, so they didn't get a resurrection body. They'll go into the the thousand-year reign in a natural body, and they'll have babies that are just natural babies, and they'll have a fallen nature. Unlike you and I who were resurrected in a sinless body at the rapture. And so... Jesus has said to, he's going to be ruling with a rod of iron during this time. He's going to keep things under control. There won't be any Chicago's and San Francisco's and Memphis's. Everything's going to be done. And if you think conservatism is strict, wait till you see how Jesus rules. He won't put up with the nonsense. I mean, everything's going to be peaceable. You won't have 
mobs breaking into stores and jewelry stores and breaking the cases and stealing stuff, Jesus will take care of that. And so we'll be on earth having a celebration where there's law and order and a renewed earth where everything is happy and Jesus got things under control for a thousand years and then we go into eternity for all of, well, you can't say time because time will be no more. Eternity just goes on and on and on, never ending. The marriage of the Lamb. Well, I think we could talk about that and read scriptures that go along with it all day, but I'd like to just conclude with saying this, that whether the marriage supper is in heaven or on earth, it's going to be a wonderful thing. And whether it lasts throughout millennium or throughout eternity as Lewis Sperry Schaefer thinks makes no difference we know it's going to be a perfect place eternity will be I think if I was not saved I'd want to be part of the bride wouldn't you let's pray together Father I pray that you'd bless us Lord help those who are saved today to just rejoice knowing that there's such a time of encouragement, enchantment, excitement that are, that are yet to take place. Lord, everything that happens in prophecy is not tragic and judgmental, but Lord, there's going to be a beautiful ceremony and a beautiful supper. And Lord, help the Christians to be encouraged about that. And Lord, I pray for those who have never been born again Oh, they may be trying to turn over a new leaf. They might try to be regular in church. They might try to even try to stop sinning. They might try to do ceremonies like the Lord's Supper or baptism in order to earn their salvation. But Lord, we know that no one can earn it by anything they do. The robe of salvation righteousness of Christ only comes as we trust in what he did on the cross to pay for our sins and Lord I pray for those who are unsaved today to make this the official time when they say Lord I'm trusting you to save me this very day because of what you did on the cross our heads are bowed and eyes are closed I'm going to